Thanks for listening to another episode of Hold Up the Book. Today's episode is part two of a class recording where we were talking about the importance of a cappella assemblies for churches that are doing their best to serve God faithfully and biblically. And in this episode, what we're doing is we're mainly talking to people who already believe that the a cappella way is the right way to do things. And we're trying to make some warnings about how to get that across to others in a good and healthy way. And so you're going to hear some kind of precautions and some warnings that are given to Christians, to believers that already are committed to a cappella assemblies. And then you're going to hear toward the end a little bit of a reminder about why it's important that we not only get this part of, of things correct when we think about worship, but we think higher and bigger thoughts about God and His praiseworthiness. And so that's where we're going to finish this whole discussion up. If you haven't yet listened to last week's episode, I recommend going back and checking that out. It'll help to clarify the doctrinal position that is the basis of this part of the discussion. So I hope that this episode proves helpful for you, and here we go. Now, in spite of the fact that that is, I think, a fairly you know simple understanding of how the Bible is to be read and applied, it still is one of those areas where we seem among the religious world at large, among the Christian world at large, we seem to be the oddballs. You know, we definitely seem like the odd ones out for worshiping in this way, that a cappella music is the only thing we do, and that seems to put us that seems to put us in a category of our own when you stop and think about everybody else, because it it just seems that few other groups sing a cappella, especially all the time. Some of them do it as a novelty, but almost nobody else does it as as a principle all the time. And it also seems to be one of those things that few evangelicals have even considered whether instruments belong in assemblies or whether the a cappella thing is the more biblical way to go all the time. But here's what I want to show you tonight, and I, and I hope that this is helpful for us, uh, especially for those of us who are committed to this idea. It's that a cappella assemblies actually have the stronger precedent in Christian history than having than having instruments in the assemblies of God's people. And so I'm, I'm just pointing that out for those of us who believe it to know that it's not as weird as you think. <laughs> you know, among the grand scheme of Christendom throughout the centuries, it's not as odd and is not as far off as one might think. And so here's this first quote. This is from Eusebius around 275 to 339 AD. That was his, his lifetime and sometime in that. Eusebius said, throughout the world, in cities and in villages and in the country, in all the churches of God, the people of Christ who have been chosen out of all the nations send up not to the native gods nor to the demons, but to the one God spoken of by the prophets, hymns, and psalmody with such a loud voice that the, pro- that the sound of those singing can be heard by those standing outside. Another early writer Uh, lived between 335 A.D. and 414 A.D. Another one said, It is time to turn to the New Testament to confirm what is said in the Old, and particularly to point out that the office of psalmody is not to be considered abolished merely because many other observances of the Old Law have fallen into desuetude. Only the corporal institutions have been rejected. Like circumcision, the Sabbath, sacrifices and discriminations in foods, so too the trumpets, harps, timbrels, and cymbals. For the sound of those, we now have a better substitute in the music from the mouths of men. 
And again, this is from the this is from the three hundreds A.D. So this is a very old idea. Um, the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia notes that there is no record in the New Testament of the use of instruments in the musical worship of the church. In this regard, early believers followed the practice of the Hebrew synagogue music. And so back as far as anybody knows, it was a well-understood thing that they would be, that they would be a cappella music in the assemblies of Christian churches. Now, one more addition to that, actually two more additions to that, um, and these come much, much later. So from the 300s A.D., we jump forward to the 1500s A.D., and this quote is from John Calvin, the father of Calvinism, right? The, the, the system of thought that bears his name. This is from him. John Calvin said, Musical instruments in celebrating the praise of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, or the restoration of the other shadows of the law. The papists, and by that he means the Catholics, Therefore, have foolishly borrowed this, as well as many other things, from the Jews. Men who are fond of outward pomp might delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostle is far more pleasing to him. And then just one other quote that's worth throwing in here. This one is from now the 1800s. We've jumped forward another 300 years, and this one is by Charles Spurgeon, that famed preacher from London. In the 1800s, Spurgeon said, What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, bellows, and pipes. I would as soon attempt to pray to God with machinery as to sing to God with machinery. Now, why am I showing you all of those quotes? Is it to show that that makes it more true or, you know, more worthwhile uh, for us to believe in this just because there are so many others who have believed it? No, I don't mean it that way at all. Um, But it does mean, and I do mean to show us by these, that, that we're not alone. You know, that it's not that strange of a concept that somebody would, a church would sing a cappella, or that really most churches would sing a cappella as their praise music. In fact, the phrase a cappella is Latin, meaning from the church or in the style of the church, which is just interesting that even the word that, that describes no instrumental music is a description based in that's how churches sing. And so that's just something that's worth us thinking about, that we are not alone and we are not super weird and the only ones to ever think like this throughout Christianity. History shows that really there hasn't been a time before the modern era where most Christians believed in using instruments. The vast majority of Christian assemblies were conducted with a cappella music only in the same way that we do them here in these assemblies. Now, with all of that said, for the defense of a cappella music in these assemblies, and with all of that said to make the case in favor of doing it that way, I need for us to also be wise about how we make this case. And so this next big section of, of this class, of this session, I want us to make some, to just kind of express some cautions for those of us who believe in the importance in the, uh, yeah, I hesitate to say supremacy, but I think that's what it is, um, in the, for the supremacy of a cappella assemblies as a way to do, to do what God has asked of us. I, I need to make some warnings 
Um, give some cautions. Maybe just like some small correctives here that will have a big impact for us and how we talk about this whole thing. Because here's what we end up doing. We end up very often weakening the strong argument in favor of a cappella assemblies by trying to shore it up with all sorts of lousy second-rate arguments that are sometimes they're sometimes just quite out uh, quite frankly they're intellectually dishonest, okay? And so let's just be satisfied with understanding that the case for what's right is strong and sufficient. As one of my brothers in another congregation in the past reminded me, a strong argument, when shored up with weak arguments, becomes a weak argument. There is a lot of wisdom in what he says right there, that a strong argument, when shored up by weak arguments, becomes a weak argument. And I just want to give us some warnings to make sure that we don't do that same thing. So here are some of the tendencies that I've heard. And unfortunately, most of these came from one single sermon that I heard once upon a time. And I won't tell you who it was by, no matter how you ask me. But most of these came from one single sermon. And they're just not really healthy at all for how we think and how we approach this topic, especially when we approach it with those that would differ with us on understanding it, okay? So the first couple of ones here that we need to make sure that we don't do is we need to make sure we don't say, well, you know, people who don't believe this must not be paying attention to their Bible at all. Or along the same lines, it's so simple that a person would have to be a fool not to understand it. Listen, both of those insult the intelligence of the other person who believes differently on this. And there are people who have looked into the Word of God and do their best to understand it, and they have arrived at a different conclusion. What we need to be able to say to them is, I think you are wrong about that, but I still respect you as a person, even though I think your conclusion is wrong. It's not helpful for Christians to be insulting of those who disagree with us. Okay? All right, another one. Another one. Sometimes we'll approach this topic and we'll go to one particular passage. We'll just pull a verse uh, or a couple of different verses out um, and, and point to them and say Ephesians 5.19 or Colossians 3.16. You see how that verse says sing and it doesn't say anything about instruments? That is why you can't use them. That means that they're not okay. My warning here is just to make sure that we don't use that rationale because it is exactly the same rationale that people use toward John 3.16 and the, necessi- the necessity excuse me, of baptism. People will approach that verse and say, well, you see how John 3.16 says believe and it doesn't say anything about baptism. That means you don't need it. I'm just telling you that if we use the top rationale on this screen, it gives them permission to use the bottom one on this screen. That if we point to one verse and we say, you see how that doesn't have any mention of this, that's why you can't do it. We are allowing other people to do exactly the same thing. And that's not a healthy way to study the Bible. And it also doesn't understand the rationale behind this point. The rationale behind this point is not that one verse says one thing and that excludes everything else. It is that in the totality of the New Testament, there is no mention of using instruments. And that's why we apply the regulative principle, the specificity of the scriptures, to say what we say 
that it is not authorized. All right, another example here of some things that we need to be cautious about. Some people will say, well, you can't truly worship God with an instrument because then there's something else going on between your heart and God. Okay, the problem with this one is that this is an intellectually dishonest way to approach many of the Old Testament passages that talk about how God was worshipped truthfully and authentically and faithfully by people who were playing instruments. Plenty of examples of this, but probably the best one is Psalm number 150 and plenty of the other psalms that talk about all the orchestra instruments that were common in their day and how those were used as praise to God. Not that they were a problem to be gotten rid of. They were actual praise to God as David's, you know, David had set in order for the people to, to praise him with these different instruments, okay? So don't use this rationale that you can't truly worship God with that because there's something going on between your heart and him. That's just intellectually dishonest with those passages. And we need to respect the fact that people worshiped him then with instruments, and it, it's not the instrument that's the problem. It's, it's the word that we have to learn how to respect. All right, another example. People say instrumental music is just an effort to manipulate people's emotions in order to contrive a response. Okay, let's just be honest about the fact that this is hypocritical because we do exactly the same thing with invitation songs. In being a young man learning how to lead singing, I was frequently advised, make sure that you start an invitation song quickly and that you sing something upbeat because you want to push somebody to go forward. You want to make sure that you capitalize on the the emotions at the end of the sermon so that they'll respond to the gospel. Guess what we are doing when we talk like that? We're trying to manipulate people's emotions in order to contrive a response. It's exactly the same thing that we're accusing other people of doing. And so let's not accuse them of that because we're doing the same thing. Let's just be, let's not be hypocritical about that. In a similar vein, let's not think that acapella is just better because it's prettier. That's not only intellectually dishonest, it's completely subjective and not everybody's going to agree with it. And if that's what you have to go on, you are, if you're adding that as an argument to the strong arguments from scriptures, you are weakening the argument from scripture in a big, big way. Okay. I've also heard other people say that instrumental music will never make people convert to Christ. And so that's why we shouldn't be using it. But I got to just point out, again, in the interest of intellectual honesty and consistency with biblical thought, that a cappella music isn't going to make converts to Christ either. Here's the right way to think about that. Sometimes we go to Acts chapter 16 and we're, we talk about Paul and Silas singing in prison and we go, see, there you go. There's an example that they were singing a cappella and people were listening to them. They were listening. They were probably becoming Christians and see what happened with the jailer, right? That's how that's supposed to go now too. But let me just again, let me just be very clear on this, that it was not the singing in the jail that made that jailer a Christian. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ And so while the gospel may be heard in song, the power of conversion remains in the gospel, not in the music, whether it's instrumental or a cappella. So let's, again, this is just an argument that is not worth using. Instrumental music will never make people convert to Christ. Yet neither will a cappella. Christ will bring people to convert to Christ. Let's make sure that we let that be what we work with and what we give them. Okay? Now, 
Two more here. Acapella music fixes the problem of turning worship into entertainment or, said another way, acapella singing removes the performance aspect of worship. Listen, the reality is that isn't true. All of us that are married, at some point we brought our our boyfriend and girlfriend to church with us for the first time. We sat next to him in church for the first time and we all thought for at least a split second, well, I hope they don't think I sing too badly. Guess what? If you were singing acapella, you were still trying to perform for them in some way thinking about how they will perceive your singing. So it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't fix the problem. And song leaders have still such a temptation to get in front of a group of people and perform for their own glory in some way, rather than singing in praise and worship and adoration of the Almighty God. And so acapella music doesn't fix that problem. Deliberately seeking to praise God fixes that problem. It fixes the problem of performance and turning worship into entertainment if our focus is truly on God. So all of those are just little warnings to make sure that we don't use weak arguments because they will weaken the strong argument that can be made in favor of a cappella assemblies. So let me round out this entire discussion and finish up the whole thing by just giving us some tips to make sure that our a cappella praise, if, that's what, if that is what we're going to do, to make sure that we make the most of it and we give the best version of it, okay? So just let me give you four quick pieces of advice here to make sure that we make the most of this and that we can do it in a way that truly pleases God and helps us as it's supposed to. Number one, thank God for the privilege of approaching Him to worship at all. Don't think about how amazing we are for doing this right. That's that's um, a superiority kind of complex that we don't need. Okay, what we need to think about is the humility of coming into the presence of God to worship Him, and we want to do that in a way that glorifies Him best. So we'll sing a cappella, and we'll thank Him for the privilege of approaching Him with that kind of worship and adoration for who He is. Secondly, when discussing this issue, Christians think clearly and answer appropriately. Don't shore up a strong argument with weak ones. Don't be intellectually dishonest. Don't get caught in the trap of, uh, of just half-thought-out arguments or hypocritical statements about people that are doing it wrongly and think that that somehow makes us better off than them. It's not about who's better off. It's about what does God want. And so let's think clearly and biblically about this issue and only speak where He has spoken on it. Third, set your convictions in order on this issue, and then let's move on from this about a cappella assemblies, because that's a discussion of the method, to talking about the higher thoughts of God's holiness and God's glory and the redemption that we have in Him and the, the infinite worthiness that He is possessed of that makes Him worthy of our praise. Let's talk about the method And then we'll move on from that discussion in very much the same way that the apostle or whoever wrote Hebrews, I I, I won't tell you who I think it was, even though you probably could guess from that. (laughs) In much the same way that the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 6, we want to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and press on to maturity and to bigger things that are more important for us to think about. Let's set our convictions on the acapella thing. And then let's move forward to maturity to talk about how do we channel through that channel how do we take our our understanding of god to a higher level and our appreciation and worship and praise of him
Okay? And doing that will help us to do this fourth one, which is make sure that your worship is authentic, not just a cappella. What I mean by that is basically encapsulated in what the Apostle Paul said when he was talking about behavior in church assemblies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this is from verse 15, he says, What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Yes, you can come into an assembly where people are singing a cappella, but you need to make sure that what you're doing is not just a cappella singing. That's kind of down here at layer one. Up on top of that, layer two and above is the authentic appreciation and the love for and the adoration of and the, and the praise to God in heaven. And so let's make sure that we sing with our spirit and we sing with our mind going beyond its acapella into its authentically pouring out our hearts to him. And so I hope that that's helpful for you in putting all the pieces together in this thought, in this discussion. Um, I hope that that gives us a clearer sense of what it's, what it's all about and, and why we do this particular activity, but also how this is a part of something much bigger, which is being in the presence of God and understanding how to worship and appreciate Him for His holiness, His glory, and for all the things about His nature that make Him worthy of our praise. Mm-hmm.